Hello and welcome to Servant's Heart Chapel. I am Pastor Daryl, and I hope today's episode is a special blessing to you. Mark chapter 11. We can, we can really be extremely dense when it comes to dealing with something that does not meet our expectations. We get locked into, well, this is how things should be. And it's hard to switch that. I'm dealing with it right now in work. I, I do these log entries as I meet with clients, and I've struggled for years with my log entries being too concise. My bosses routinely ask me to to add more information, embellish it, and I just get right to the point, here's the statement, and I just recently figured out it's because I spent almost 20 years writing bullet statements in the military. To the point, the action and the result. Here's what's going on. Very, and if it wasn't an enlisted performance report, it was uh, a bullet, uh, a bullet paper. Um, there, it is very concise writing. This is what it should be done. You get used to that, and um, and when something is askew, uh, we, from what we consider reality, it can be hard wrapping our heads around the actual truth. That's why Charlie Chaplin got third place in a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. Because no one expected Charlie Chaplin to actually enter in the contest. Every years ago, I was at a convention, a Wounded Warrior convention, and I might have been Orlando or Tampa, and I walked into the convention hall. I, it, it was still early. The, the, the event wasn't going to start for another 40 minutes or so, but I wanted to get a good seat in the back. <laughs> and so I, I went, had my bag with me, and, and I went to the chair and sat my bag down, and I looked at the front, and the director of the SOCOM Warrior Care program was, uh, was uh, talking to another guy, and I thought, man, that guy looks a lot like John Stewart, the talk show host. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And I... Uh, went on my way. Well, then after the event started, come to find out, it actually was John Stewart, the talk show host. Didn't even occur to me that, that that was actually him. I just noted it looked like that guy. I, I blind to reality from our expectations. My most fun example of this, you know, Cody hates this, but I is when we, 10 years ago this year, we decided to surprise the kids with a trip to Disney World. That was, of course, before Disney got all crazy woke on us. But uh, um, we were going to surprise them with a trip to Disney World. And, and originally, we were going to be going somewhere else. And last minute, we decided to switch to Disney World, but we didn't tell the kids. And so we went. And they could not wrap their minds around the reality that, that they were going um, to Disney World even as we were passing through the Disney World gate. In fact, Cody told me later that uh, he thought that I was playing some kind of joke 
Like, what kind of monster <laughs> drives their kids to Disney World and says, oh, just kidding. Uh, but they couldn't wrap their heads around it. Why? Because they weren't expecting it at all. And, and that's a big part of our humanity is that. And that's something that we see in this situation 2,000 years ago. It's happening here. In fact, um, before we get into Mark 11, I'm going to go back real quick to Mark chapter 8. You won't need to, but I'm going to read verses 27 through 29. In Mark 8, there were expectations for the Messiah, yes, but the, they expected the Messiah to be a political power. Someone who would free them from the tyranny of the Romans. That's what they were expecting. They weren't expecting a spiritual power. Someone that would free them from their sins, the tyranny of their sins. Even the disciples who were with him all the time and heard the sayings, things he said, where he blatantly told them what was going to happen and, and saw what he did and, and how he lived, they didn't get it until after the resurrection, even though he told them over and over again. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, we read, Jesus went out with the disciples, his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. He had been educating his closest disciples about what type of Messiah he is. He has been explaining over and over that he is much more than just a political revolutionist to bring about national restoration and throw off the bonds of Roman oppression, and they still didn't get it. This is the beginning of Holy Week, the Christ last week on earth before he gives himself for us and then is raised from the dead. It's hard to go overboard on the significance of the last week of Christ's time on earth. Did you know one third of Mark's gospel and one half of John's gospel cover the last seven days of Jesus' life? Historians tell us that the population of Jerusalem was around 80,000 at this time, and Passover is starting. And during this time, between 2 and 3 million people would crowd into the city for the celebration. The people came in anticipation. They were looking for God to do something while they were there. God would do his greatest work of all during this Passover but most people would miss it altogether. On to chapter 11, verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Notice they say Mount of, talk about the Mount of Olives. 
It's a significant place in, in really the history of mankind. It's a ridge about two and a half miles long, and it rises to the, a height of, of about 2,700 feet, 200 feet higher than Mount Zion. A view from its summit is breathtaking. Its crest is less than a mile directly east of Jerusalem. And it's known for its many olive trees. On its slopes, we found that that were the path of David's retreat from Jerusalem to escape capture from Absalom. On this mount, Solomon grieved God by erecting idols for his foreign wives to worship. Ezekiel witnessed the glory of God on the Mount of Olives. And here we see, we're about to see Jesus, the son of David, make his royal entry into Jerusalem from here. And it's also here that the disciples witness Jesus' ascension into glory. In fact, in Acts, uh, Jesus said he would come again the same way that, that they watched him go. Zechariah tells us what will happen when those holy feet touch down once again where he left. He said, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. A lot happening on that small space. All the earth, so much history has happened and so much is expected to happen. In verse 2, uh, Jesus told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Notice that with the word go, Jesus demonstrated his authority over men. A lot of Christians don't act like Jesus actually has authority over them. Do you recognize Christ's authority over your life? Have you asked Jesus how he wants you to live? Have you searched the scriptures looking for his guidance to you? Is Jesus really the king of your life? Or are other things more important? Opinions of other people. Your own wants. Also in verse 2, Jesus said, You will find. The words you will find. Demonstrating his knowledge. He knew where the donkey was. knew what to expect. Demonstrating his omniscience. In Revelation chapter 2, 
He spoke to the church in Ephesus. In verse 2, he said, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. Jesus told them, I know. I know the good things that you've been doing. Later in the chapter, he says, I know the bad things you've been doing. Or you got it wrong. Or you've messed up. Or you've fallen short. Jesus knows. Jesus knows our struggles. He knows our successes. He knows our failures. He knows our hopes. He knows what's in your heart at this very moment. We can be blind to our own heart, can't we? Just this past week, I I noticed a post on Facebook. This man was ranting, uh, and he's claiming to be a Christian, and he was blasting people for not being loving to him because they were quoting scripture to him. And that made him mad, and he cursed them. I found it ironic that he was guilty himself from that post. It was evidence that he was guilty of the very sin that he was accusing others of. And that was not being loving, not being charitable. He was completely blind. He, he, wanted, he was accusing others, it, it, just like that Jesus said in that one uh, gospel, how I get the tree out of your own eye. Right before trying to splinter out of your brother's eye. This guy has a tree in his eye. He doesn't see it. But I don't want to be too critical of him because I've been guilty of the same thing. Completely blind to myself, my own heart, my own attitudes. I need the Holy Spirit to help me see. Sometimes a person's heart isn't, uh, a problem with a person's heart isn't obvious to, to anyone else either. You're able to keep the facade. Everything's fine. I just gave a uh, devotional at a local ministerial alliance. I had pastors at the, ta- at the tables at the Lighthouse Mission. And, and I, I, my devotional was on Revelation 2, on leaving your first love. Because it's so easy and when you're in the ministry to, to just get caught up in the minutia of ministry and start forgetting about the whole reason you're doing in the first place, your love for Christ. And someone actually messaged me today and thanked me for that devotional and said that they, it was a help to them because they, they, they realized they had left the first, the love they had first with Christ. And they've been working on reestablishing that. But if you'd seen this person, if you'd talked to this person, worked this person, you'd never guess that anything was going off, anything was wrong. Yeah. 
So if I have something wrong in my heart, I may not know it, and, and, and you may not know it, but I tell you what, it's always obvious to God. Nothing in your life is ever hidden from Him. And that's a comfort. That's a comfort that we, we're not ever tempted to think that we can get away with something for one thing. It's also a comfort to know I can't trust myself sometimes. I can't trust myself to accurately assess the situation, but I know someone I can trust. And that's God. Notice he tells the, the disciples to find this donkey that's never been ridden. You ever ridden a horse? You ever ridden an unbroken horse? I haven't. Have you? Oh, you touched it. Was it an adventure? Oh, you got dragged. That's, yeah. So we, Jesus demonstrates his authority by, over creation. To him, the donkey was already broken. It wasn't going to give him any problems. Because Jesus is in charge. He is the king. He has authority over us. He has all the wisdom he needs. He has authority over creation. Now let's look at verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. The Lord has need of it. Did you know the Lord has need of you? The creator of the universe needs us and desires to fit us into his eternal design. He's not dependent on anybody, but he has chosen to carry out his plans through lowly human instruments. If this weren't so, he would have taken us to heaven as soon as he saved us by grace. But he wants us to participate in this war going on, this spiritual war. Someone once asked uh, Francis of Assisi, how he was able to accomplish so much, he replied, this may be why, the Lord looked down from heaven and said, where can I find the weakest, littlest man on earth? Then he saw me and said, I found him. I will work through him and he won't be proud of it. He'll see that I am only using him because of his insignificance. Lord doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. All we have to do is make ourselves available for his use. Verse uh, 4, so they went and found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door. They 
untied it, and some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing? Untying the donkey? What are you doing? Untying the donkey? They answered them, just as Jesus has said, so they let them go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their ropes on it, their robes on it, and he sat on it. Many people, in verse 8 here, many people spread their robes on the road and others just spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Barclay noted that the whole picture here is of a people who misunderstood. So you see that people are spreading their robes on the ground Others are spreading leafy branches on the ground. They're, they're creating what we could deem a modern version of that. They're, they're rolling the red carpet out for him. But they misunderstood. Why were they doing that? Because they misunderstood what he was there for. See, it shows us, this shows us, they were doing everything that you would expect a crowd to do for a coming king, an arriving king. But they were thinking of kingship in terms of conquest. Overthrowing the Romans. It's uh, reminiscent of, of how Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem 150 years prior after he had blasted Israel's enemies in a battle on the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments with, and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So they were doing... They were treating Jesus like this conquering king they did over 100 years ago, the very same method. It was a conqueror's welcome they sought to give to Jesus. But they never dreamed of the kind of conqueror he wished to be. Here in verse 8, we see the character of Jesus revealed. Notice his courage. He blatantly comes into Jerusalem. He knows his enemies who are seeking to kill them are headquartered in Jerusalem. And he goes right for it. Notice his humility riding on a donkey. He doesn't come on a horse. He comes on a donkey. He, the reason is the horse represents conquering and warfare. And the donkey represents peace. Notice he, he, he's obedient to God's will. This is what the Father wanted him to do, and he's doing it even though it's bringing him closer to uh, a great time of tribulation that we could never comprehend. Verse 9, Then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. Hosanna! I just means save now. 
And combining that with, with the name of Jesus, Jesus means, literally means God is deliverance. So God is deliverance and, and save us now. And, and, and so everybody thought he was there to save them from the Romans, not save them from their sins. They got it wrong. Verse 10, the coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. By saying in the highest, the crowd was invoking heaven's blessing on them and the salvation that the Messiah was bringing. This uh, also echoes, this phrase also echoes what we read in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest. We could paraphrase the shouts of the crowd, save us our Messiah, who comes to fulfill God's mission. Save us, we beseech you, as you take your rightful throne and extend heaven's salvation to us. There are those who, who, who declare themselves admirers of Jesus, yet do not recognize him as a savior of sinners. We're seeing that now, even in the Christian church. But our deepest need cannot be met until our sin problem is overcome. For this reason, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with his face set toward the cross, knowing full well the shameful and painful death he will suffer there. Now, having paid the price for human sin, he is highly exalted at God's right hand and will come again as King of kings and Lord of lords. His cross had to precede his crown. Even now. There are those who call themselves Christian, but reject Jesus came to save us from our sins. And we follow Jesus too. Our, our cross must precede the crown. We look forward to the crown that God is going to award us, knowing we need to remember that there's, there's struggles here on earth. There's challenges Disappointments, pain, suffering. But we abide that, abide by that, and ask God to help us through that with the full knowledge and hope that someday it is going to be over. Praise the Lord. Verse 11. And he went in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? The crowd seemed to have dissipated pretty, pretty quickly. When they realized it, it, something, we're missing a piece here. Because suddenly there, there's no crowds. Kind of anticlimactic. 
Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem this way? Let me suggest several reasons. First off, uh, to fulfill the prophecy concerning himself. The gospel accounts stress that this act was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, such as we see in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look at your... Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. It also fulfills a prophecy in Malachi 3.1. See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you see, you delight in see. He is coming, says the Lord of armies. Jesus came this way to safely enter Jerusalem. It may not seem necessary, but the word was out to close the location of Jesus as soon as he appeared. Why? So they could arrest him. We see that in John 11.57. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. If Jesus had attempted to enter secretly, he could have been quietly disposed of. But entering as he did, the religious leaders could not so much as look the finger against him because of the crowds. As we see in John chapter 12, verse 19. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus entered this way to publicly and symbolically give testimony to his identity as the Messiah. There would be no question. Neither the crowds nor the religious leaders missed the implications of his triumphal entry. Jesus entered this way to, uh, as a proclamation of the kind of kingdom he was to establish. He didn't march Proudly into the city with a strutting military, uh, as a strutting military figure, nor did he ride a spirited stallion. He rode on a donkey, symbolic of his humble peacemaking assignment. Jesus entered this way finally to provoke the opposition and precipitate his own execution on the appointed day. Nothing could have been more of a catalyst to the opposing forces than this bold public proclamation. It was very clear to them that he was saying he is the Messiah, and they could not abide by that. Something had to be done, and fast. As we remember Holy Week this week and celebrate it, I encourage you to spend time thinking about who Jesus really is and make sure you don't have the wrong idea and make the same mistake that those in Jerusalem made 2,000 years ago. For he said himself in Revelation, first chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Then in chapter 22, verse 
12 through 16. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things for you, for the churches. I am the root and descent of David, the bright morning star. That is who Jesus is, our king. Let's treat him like our king. Let's look to him, our king and our Lord. And now let us stand. Well, that's all for today. I hope it was a blessing to you. I do have one more thing to add. Uh, I have recently published a book entitled Stop Poisoning Yourself, Finding Joy in All Circumstances. Few of us realize the impact uh, our thoughts have on our daily lives, how it impacts our emotions, our relationships, including our relationship with God. Uh, in this book, I, I go through this very short, easy to read book. I go through what the Bible says about it, how and what we can do uh, to eliminate poisonous thoughts in our lives. So to, if you're interested, go check it out on Ken, uh, Amazon Kindle's website. You'll find it there. Just search for Stop Poisoning Yourself by Daryl Underwood. Enjoy.